This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 4th, 2016. I'm Alexa Billow. In this week's show, news writer Greg Miller discusses trading opioids for marijuana. And Sarah Crespi talks with Sasha Drulo about fetal genome profiling at five weeks gestation. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. More and more people suffering from chronic pain are turning to marijuana as a treatment. It's becoming a more accessible option as many states continue to liberalize their marijuana laws. However, scientific evidence for the beneficial effects of pot is scant, and that's because research is lagging due to strict federal legislation. In this week's special issue on pain, Greg Miller writes about a surprising correlation between marijuana legalization and deaths from opioid painkillers. I'm Alexa Billow. Greg, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. So first of all, what is this relationship that you describe in your piece between marijuana and opioids? What is happening in states where medical marijuana is legal? There's actually a really interesting and probably very long history here. People, of course, have used marijuana for thousands of years. And for most of that time, we don't have any records on how they used it or why. But way back in the 1800s, when the British started bringing marijuana back from India, doctors there were really curious to try it for all kinds of conditions. And for pain, especially, they noticed that when they gave patients cannabis, they seemed to use less or require less opioid painkiller medicine to manage their pain. So it's actually kind of remarkable that 150 years later, we're still trying to settle this question of whether marijuana maybe could substitute for opioid drugs and help people avoid some of the problems. What's happening recently, of course, in the United States is that half of the states now allow medical marijuana, and I think nine states have ballot measures in this year's election to allow either recreational or medical marijuana. So there's this sort of really interesting, uncontrolled experiment going on where millions of people have access to marijuana and can use it to treat their pain or whatever else afflicts them. So do public health officials and doctors reckon that that's a good thing? Well, the reason that it might be is that There's a huge opioid problem, as people probably know, in this country and to some extent in in Canada. I think the latest statistics are that roughly 20,000 people a year are dying of opioid 
overdoses. And so if the evidence holds up that marijuana could substitute for opioids, that could conceivably make a dent in that problem. Because marijuana is relatively safer and less addictive. That's Is that the reason? Yeah, that's the general thinking. Not that marijuana can't be a drug of abuse, but it might not have quite the potential that opioid drugs do for abuse. So do we know why legal marijuana seems to decrease opioid use? Are people just using it instead, or is there some kind of biochemistry going on, maybe? We don't really know, but there's some research coming from a bunch of different directions that kind of seems to suggest that marijuana might actually be substituting for opioid use. So in my article, I talk about a few of the public health studies that have been done just in the last few years. Researchers analyzed death certificates in states with medical marijuana laws versus states where medical marijuana is not legal. And they found a reduction in opioid overdose deaths in the states that allowed medical marijuana. And there have been some other studies that have looked, you know, come at the problem from different directions, looking at the prescriptions for painkiller drugs in the Medicare and Medicaid data that are out there. All of those kind of public health studies seem to be at least suggesting that states where medical marijuana is legal might be seeing a modest reduction in the abuse and overdose due to opioid analgesic drugs. So as you've said, there's not a lot of studies on the efficacy of marijuana to treat pain, but based on what we do have, what's it doing? What effect does marijuana have in the body? There's a fair amount of research with animals looking at the biochemistry and physiology of cannabis. And so the compounds in marijuana that are active in the body are called cannabinoids. And we have throughout our body and our brain and spinal cord and peripheral nervous system receptors for those compounds. We actually, our bodies make our own endogenous version of cannabinoids. And we have these receptors throughout our body and they seem to be concentrated in parts of the nervous system that process pain. And so there is evidence that activating these cannabinoid receptors in the body with either marijuana or compounds derived from marijuana can dampen pain responses. So, so there is actually a, a reasonable, reasonably plausible explanation of how marijuana might act to reduce pain. Is there any worry about side effects from that kind of treatment? Sure. Yeah, like any drug, cannabis has side effects. And and the ones that people seem to worry about the most with regard to treating chronic pain are learning and memory problems, problems with confusion, the distortion of time, which are ironically kind of some of the, the effects that people might be seeking if they're using marijuana recreationally. But if people are really trying to manage chronic pain so that they can get through a day at work, those are the kind of cognitive side effects that they really don't want. Is this relationship between marijuana and opioids specific to opioids and to prescription painkillers? Or is there evidence that people are also turning to marijuana over simple over-the-counter treatments like Tylenol? I think the short answer is we just don't know. It's hard enough to track how people are using marijuana and prescription opioids, let alone over-the-counter drugs. But if, in fact, marijuana is working for people to treat their pain, and, and a lot of medical marijuana patients do say that it does help their pain and it's as effective or even more effective as the traditional pain killers that they're taking, I think there's no reason to think that they wouldn't be substituting it for other over-the-counter drugs, too. So in your piece, you describe a sort of catch-22 situation where the researchers can't study pot due to restrictions. The government says, well, we'll lift the restrictions when there's more research. 
Do you see a way out of this? That is the quandary right now where marijuana is still listed as a Schedule One drug. That's the DEA's most restrictive class of drugs, things like heroin and LSD that have a high potential for abuse and no known medical use, according to the DEA. And so they just recently, in the last couple of months, reinstated that listing after a review by the FDA. And the FDA basically argued that you know, when we look at the research on cannabis, it just doesn't meet the standards that we would normally apply to a new drug application. And that is kind of true, but at the same time, people have used cannabis for thousands of years, millions of people are using it now. So a lot of the researchers I talked to think that there needs to be some relaxation of the restrictions to make it easier for them to do the research that would actually convince the FDA and the DEA to reschedule it. I do think things are changing, like the public sentiment towards cannabis is obviously changing as more and more states legalize it, either for medical or recreational use. It's generating a lot of tax receipts for those states. And some of those states, like California and Colorado, have been plowing that money back into research because they want to see the research done. At the same time, there are a few bills in Congress now that would relax some of the restrictions on researchers, for example, by speeding up the review time that the DEA takes to review the grant applications for research involving cannabis. Greg, thanks so much for talking with us today. Sure. It's been a pleasure. Greg Miller contributes a story on pot and pain to this week's special pain issue of science. Now, we have Sarah Crespi talking to Sasha Drulo about a new way to profile fetal genomes at a very early point in pregnancy. Researchers have spent decades trying to get an early look at fetal genes in a way that's safe, reliable, and non-invasive. Sasha Drulo is here to talk about a new approach that appears to tick all the boxes. Welcome, Sasha. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having us. So can you start us off with what we're looking for in fetal genes? So what we're looking at uh, normally and most commonly are aneuploidies. These are chromosomal disorders of the genome where they are amplified or multiplied. You probably know trisomy 21, also known as Down syndrome, which affects about 250,000 American families currently. But on top of that, there are numerous genetic disorders, about 6,000, which are hard to diagnose early in pregnancy and often not looked at. So our technology tries to close that gap to be able to look at more genetic disorders during pregnancy, such as um, sickle cell anemia, as well as other genetic and metabolic disorders. There's been some progress on this in recent years. Amniocentesis is probably something people are pretty familiar with. What other kind of testing is being done on fetal DNA? We um, categorize different approaches. We call it the pre-implantation diagnosis, which is probably not uh, applicable for people who naturally get pregnant. But in terms of in vitro fertilization, basically, we can take a little piece of the embryo and look at the genome. But what are we doing with uh, people who naturally conceive, which is a vast majority? Really, the current abilities to do so are mostly invasive. These are amniocentesis, as you mentioned, where a needle is used to um, poke a little hole into the yolk sac and get the amniocytes, 
which carry as well the fetal genome. This can be then very detailed analyzed and very successfully. There's a minimal risk to that as well, and technically it's very standard. Another approach is a chorionic villus sampling. The chorion is part of the placenta, and as well in early pregnancy, I think about like 12 weeks, you can tick a little piece by uh, using a biopsy needle and then analyze that. But as you can imagine, this is all very invasive and not something most people want to do. Another approach is a non-invasive approach, which we call cell-free fetal DNA. With this approach, we take a little piece of blood from the mother and the placenta and the fetus sheds naturally DNA and fragments into the maternal circulation. So this can be assessed, but it's really difficult to do so. And why is it? Because the fetal DNA is fragmented and needs a huge amount of sequencing as well as bioinformatics capabilities to give a definite answer. And lastly, because of the fragmented DNA, we cannot go down to single nucleotide resolution. The reason for that is we do not get the sequencing depth and confidence in the data at this point. The current American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists recommend always to do an invasive test if the non-invasive test is positive. Therefore, we need new approaches. And your approach does a couple of things. It's earlier, it's non-invasive, and it gives you access to a lot larger swath of the genome. And what you're looking at specifically is DNA from trophoblasts. What are trophoblasts and how do we obtain them? The trophoblast cell line lineages of the human placenta. So they have two major tasks. One is the villus trophoblast, which ensures that nutrients from the maternal blood are taken up and provided to the fetus. Secondly is the extravillous trophoblast, which plays a very important role very early in pregnancy, since it anchors the placenta to the maternal decedua, but as well has other important functions such as remodeling the spiral arteries and therefore ensuring that the baby receives enough nutrients. As part of this process, some of those cells end up in the cervical canal. We don't understand fully why, but we assume that glands wash out those cells and they naturally follow gravity and end up in the lower uh, segment of the cervix. So basically what you're saying is that women are, are kind of losing these fetal cells almost to the external world. Yeah, it's basically part of the normal physiology of placental growth. This is the first time we really have access to the cells, although they are known for many years and many people try to purify those cells. This is the first time we have them now available for various analyzers. What were you able to do differently this time that gave you access to enough of the DNA, enough of these cells? Yeah, that's a very important question because many scientists have been working and trying to purify those cells. So my colleague and co-author, Dr. Armand, he basically spearheaded the technology and published a couple of years ago a method to isolate those cells very efficiently. So the biggest challenge in the past was to get rid of the huge and vast amount of maternal cells. So he developed a technology where he used an antibody against um, HLAG, which we linked to uh, nanoparticles to basically deplete the fetal cells from the vast majority of maternal cells. And therefore, we have like a very pure population of fetal cells between 100 and up to 1,000 cells, depending on the initial cell count, which enables us now to assess the cells more in detail. On top of this, there is a huge challenge normally when people tried this before, when they did genetic analysis, they only saw the maternal signal. And when we started our technology, we had the same challenge, which we overcame in this paper. 
So what do you do then? So once you get, you, you take a sample from the mother and you purify out just these fetal cells, what do you do then? Are you just sequencing the DNA in there? Yeah, so like we started exactly with that idea. So we knew there were fetal cells in there because we stained for the Y chromosome of the baby boy. So uh, we were <laughs> naively assuming when we sequenced them, they should directly give us uh, the fetal genotype. But that didn't happen. And we were really baffled about this. And um, it took us a while to figure out that we had to realize that maternal DNA co-purifies to a vast extent and that we mostly analyzing those. So we had to get rid of that. And by how we did this was we um, basically did a nuclear isolation of the fetal cells and introduced a couple of DNA purification methods to really get a high fetal fraction. High fetal fraction means low contamination. And in this paper, we show that we up, get up to 99% of fetal fraction, which is unheard for with its approach. So once you get a high fetal fraction of the DNA, you can then sequence and look for yes. individual disorders or even single nucleotide changes? Correct. All the challenges other the cell-free DNA technology has, we were not facing. So since we have this pure DNA, we could directly target areas in the genome to our liking. So in this paper, we basically showed the proof of concept of that. What we did is we um, sequenced about 160 locations across the genome and showing that we were able to 100% identify the fetal genotype when we compared it to the placental genotype, which is similar. So what does this mean for this test? I mean, it doesn't seem like the part where you get the cells is going to need much in the way of trialing and approving, but the purification and the how high the quality of these reads are, how, how does that move forward and get closer to the clinic? Oh, this is a... This will be fantastic in the future because now we have the means and the quality of DNA to basically look at any spot in the fetal genome, which is very, very important. Invasive technologies can only analyze the fetal genome at the end of the first trimester, and we can do it much earlier and with similar quality. This is very important because it helps us early to manage pregnancies, give uh, families a peace of mind, and provide the clinicians to um, inform patients accordingly. So this will be big because the technology we are providing here is very simple. As you can see, it's a pap smear, it's really simplistic. And we use a targeted sequencing approach, which is very fast, it's very reliable, and gives you a lot of confidence. We believe that this will be a game changer in how we in the future hopefully diagnose genetic disorders in the fetus. All right, this is a really hard question to answer, but how long do you think it will take to go from this proof of principle to this test being available oh. out there in the world? It all comes down to <laughs> it all comes down to funding to be very honest. You know, we are, our next step is we are developing now so our proof of concept test basically used variable um, genetic variations in the genome. Now we translate that and developing genetic tests. We're adding basically other genetic loci to it to uh, ensure we can target those regions. Long story short, I hope within the next five years, we should be able to provide more information for patients. This will be first has to be done, obviously, in clinical studies where we will try to use a gold standard and compare if our technology is as competitive and reliable. So there are a lot of tests that have been done. I think if we, we try to align forces with other genetic centers, and hopefully we get the numbers together very soon and can do those studies. Sasha, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you very much, Sarah. It was great. Sasha Drulo and colleagues write about a new approach 
to fetal genome profiling in this week's issue of Science Translational Medicine. Is your podcast app too full of nonfiction? Every week, the show Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape brings listeners captivating stories of crime, love, mysteries, conspiracies, and more. The show features well-known actors and stories based on both new and established characters. Episodes run about 30 minutes, so be sure you subscribe because some of those stories span more than one episode. Here in Washington, D.C., you can tune your radio on Sunday nights to some old audio dramas like Johnny Dollar or Dragnet, but now Secrets, Crime, and Audio Tape aims to start a new golden age of audio drama. That means sound design, that means Foley work, and actual writing and acting. Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape is an audio drama told week after week. It's like listening to your favorite TV show. Be sure to subscribe today and check out the latest thrilling episode called Severed Threads, about faith, greed, and revenge. Make sure you don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape on iTunes, Stitcher, Wondery.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. <laughs>